Thank you so much for inviting me, Tinchi, and uh, I'm honored to be here in so important a discussion with uh, Professor Wen and the rest of you over what today's crisis is revealing about what capitalism has been evolving into. Uh, and it's a crisis not only of capitalism, but for the entire world economy. And uh, we are indeed in a collapse. And you can say that industrial capitalism has already collapsed between wor- the end of World War I and about 1980. It collapsed into something quite different, into finance capitalism, uh, into uh, something that's very akin to more to feudalism, more a going back from industrial capitalism than something that's been going forward. And I think we uh, the best way to begin is by recognizing what 19th century economists uh, all expected industrial capitalism to be, whether it's uh, Karl Marx or John Stuart Mill or the bourgeois socialists or even the non-socialists and the business school people. Everybody in the 19th century expected industrial capitalism to evolve into some kind of socialism. The question is, what kind of socialism? They thought that uh, that industrial capitalism had a destiny that Marx really spelled out. Uh, he said it was to free economies from the legacy of feudalism. It was to free economies from the landlord class that was uh, living uh, on hereditary land rents, uh, rents, rents without working. It was to free itself from a predatory banking system that was extractive, that made war loans uh, in exchange for uh, uh, grabbing uh, infrastructure monopolies from banks that uh, uh, had to pay their creditors to go to war. Uh, The uh, capitalism was supposed to get rid of monopolies, of land rent, uh, and it was supposed to transform the financial uh, system to make finance an industrial system. Uh, Well, we know that that hasn't happened. Uh, Instead, uh, industry has been financialized and banking uh, has sort of taken over the dynamic of industrial capitalism uh, in a way that has brought back exactly what industrial capitalism was supposed to to cure. The uh, political aim of capitalism reached a crisis just before World War I. Uh, And the idea was to take away the most obvious form of feudalism, the the most burdensome legacy, and that was land rent. And uh, to get rid of land rent, you really had to get rid of the landlord class or simply take the land into the public domain or somehow uh, socialize it. And that required a political revolution. Uh, In England... The revolution uh, became a constitutional crisis in 1909 and 1910 when uh, the House of Commons passed a land tax, uh, which is what uh, John Stuart Mill, Adam Smith, all of the classical economists said uh, uh, had to be done. And the House of Lords vetoed it because the House of Lords said, well, we if you tax the land, we won't get the rent. And so... Uh, uh, the question is, what were you going to have? Were you going to have democracy or were you going to have oligarchy? Well, uh, and capitalism, industrial capitalism, had sponsored democracy. And it had sponsored democracy in order to counter the House of Lords, in order to counter the upper uh, sphere of parliament, in order to uh, 
replace the power of inherited wealth with uh, taking wealth into the public domain. Well, indeed, a law was passed in England by 1910 saying that the House of Lords could never again overrule a revenue bill, that is a tax bill, by the House of Commons. Uh, and that was in 1910. But by that time already, Europe was on, on the road to uh, World War One, And uh, uh, World War I uh, basically changed everything. And uh, uh, really the dynamic of World War One, the inter-allied debts, the German reparations, and the United States essentially taking over uh, world planning by uh, virtue of its gold stock and acting as a creditor uh, turned out to uh, uh, be financial. And most wealth since 1949-45 has been achieved by financial means, not by industrial means. Most of wealth of America, the, the middle class uh, that thinks that it's got wealthy, has got uh, uh, its net worth from the rising price of its housing and its real estate. Rising prices for stocks and bonds uh, and real estate have been what have created wealth, not the means of production, not profits, uh, not wages, and not savings. Most wealth that people have, <clears throat> excuse me, mo- uh, most wealth that people have is not made from saving up profits, it's not made from saving up wages. It's, men, it's made from banks uh, inflating the economy with credit. For banks creating credit to uh, increase uh, the price of uh, housing for people, to increase uh, the uh, prices of stocks and bonds. And you've seen in the last three months uh, the Federal Reserve and Treasury in the United States creating $10 trillion worth of credit not to put into the economy, not to pay labor, not to uh, uh, pay people to stay home, not to build infrastructure or create new means of production or to do anything that industrial capitalism was supposed to do. Simply to bid up prices for stocks and bonds and real estate uh, that are owned overwhelmingly by the wealthiest 5% of the population. So instead of having industrial capitalism that was supposed to percolate through the uh, economy and rise everybody, you have the economy of the 5% that rules through finance in a kind of symbiosis with real estate because 80% of bank loans are for real estate. And for uh, monopoly rent uh, and uh, banks are and finance are the mother of trusts uh, and uh, for uh, special privileges, uh, copyright and intellectual property and uh, technology. So uh, what we're having is a kind of monopoly uh, <clears throat> central planning that uh, was the reverse of what the classical economists uh, thought about that. <clears throat> Say corporate profits are for paying interest. The idea of industrial capitalism was that uh, industrialists would hire uh, work employees to produce goods and services to sell at a markup at a profit. And this profit was supposed to be reinvested in creating new means of production, new factories, new tools, new buildings. But that's not what's happened. For the last 10 years, more than 90% of profits of American industry have been spent either on stock buybacks, that is, they buy back their own corporate stocks to support the stock prices of the companies making profit, or they've been paid out as dividends. 
on the theory that if you pay the profits out as dividends to stockholders, then you will uh, uh, raise the price of stocks. And the aim of finance capitalism is not to create more means of production like industrial capitalism was doing. The aim of finance capitalism is simply to increase the cost of obtaining housing, the cost of obtaining a retirement income. It's to centralize property and economic planning in the hands of a financial class uh, ruling uh, financially. So instead of uh, planning being centered in the political centers, like Washington or London or Paris, uh, it's uh, the parliaments. Planning is centered in Wall Street in New York, uh, in the city of London, uh, the financial sector, or in the Paris force uh, or in Frankfurt. Uh, not in, uh, in uh, industrial planning. So instead of industrial engineering leading to productivity that was supposed to make the world richer and richer, uh, we have financial planning, uh, financial engineering uh, to increase the price of wealth, the price of property, the price of access to the means of living simply by uh, financial means. So, what kind of capitalism is this? Uh, are we talking about industrial capitalism or finance capitalism? Uh, we know that uh, the United States, Europe, and China got wealthy by producing housing and goods and services to raise living standards and productivity. Finance, that's not the aim of finance capitalism. Since 1980, uh, uh, all of the growth in gross domestic product in the United States has accrued only to 5% of the population. For 95% of the population, the GDP has been going down steadily ever since 19, uh, 2008, ever since President Obama bailed out the banks and he said, we can save either the banking sector, uh, the creditors, or the debtors. Well, he invited the creditors to the White House. Uh, he said, you're my campaign donors. I'm not going to support the people who voted for me. I'm going to support you, the campaign donors. I'm the only man standing between you and the mob with pitchforks. Uh, the president of the United States called the American working class the mob with pitchforks. Hillary Clinton called them deplorables. And uh, to both uh, Clinton and Obama, the working class is essentially the enemy. Uh, it is uh, essentially to be turned into... Uh, uh, quasi-serfs. You could say that uh, the dynamic of finance capitalism is neo-serfdom. Now, the, uh, this is not what uh, industrial capitalism was supposed uh, supposed to be. Uh, it's not producing uh, affluence. It's uh, producing just the opposite. It's uh, purely exploitation, and the basic uh, dynamic is debt leveraging. The uh, uh, the entire uh, U.S. economy, the European economy, uh, has been forced into debt in order to uh, have access to housing that is uh, priced higher and higher as a result of bank credit. This bank credit is not money that people have saved. It's created electronically. Uh, so we're at a, a point has been reached where the economy in the West is all loaned up. Uh, the whole 75-year run-up from 1945 to today, uh, 2020, is at an end. 
there's no more room for growth uh, because all of the uh, income that the economy has over and above basic subsistence needs for most of the population is being uh, used uh, to pay debt service for the financial sector, land rent, economic rent, monopoly rent, uh, and taxes and uh, uh, forced savings. So now we get back to what the uh, uh, trigger for this conference today is, and that is how does the coronavirus affect all of this? Well, the virus has uh, merely been a catalyst for processes that were already underway. Already in January of this year, uh, you had the economy all loaned up. People thought, how can uh, the economy go forward? Uh, uh, the American President Trump had uh, run for president, promising to build up infrastructure, to rebuild the country's transportation, uh, the electrical system, the transportation system, the uh, uh, just the general economy. He didn't have a single penny to pay for it. He cut the taxes, but only the taxes on the financial sector. Only the taxes on the wealthiest 5%. So uh, essentially, uh, the economy has been in a, a 12-year Obama depression. It was a depression since 2008 that was caused by leaving all of the debts that had been built up onto the books. The junk mortgage debts, largely fraudulent bank loans, uh, the uh, over-indebted uh, workers who spend uh, maybe 30% of their income on, uh, on interest and financial charges, uh, rent, uh, not leaving any money available to buy the goods and services that workers produce. So the whole idea that you get in the economic textbooks that uh, Chinese students are taught in the West when they go to the universities here about workers producing goods and services and getting a paycheck that they buy what they produce, that's not happening. Workers get a paycheck, but they're not buying what they produce. They're paying debt service to the banks. Uh, they're paying uh, land, either the landlord's rent or they're paying a mortgage. They're paying a credit card uh, uh, interest and penalties for uh, the cost of living. They are paying... In, uh, student loans in order to get an education to get a job. They're paying car automobile loans to have a car to drive to the, to the job. So um, you have a, uh, a financialized economy that is destroying uh, the whole dynamic of uh, industrial capitalism. Now, that being said, that means that there is a, the U.S. drive for hegemony that we've been talking about in our uh, meetings, and it gives a, a, dis a distinct dimension. The U.S. is not dominating the world by its industrial power, as uh, people thought was the case in World War I, when America, Germany, uh, had uh, caught up with England and were bypassing it. Uh, America, between uh, the end of World War uh, one and World War Two ruled through its creditor position. Uh, it 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 held the world's gold. Seventy five percent by the time of the Korean War in uh, 1950, and uh, the gold was the basis of uh, uh, the monetary system of the world. Well, now we know that this has been turned inside out. The United States has become the world's major debtor, and uh, it's uh, dominating not as creditor but as a debtor to the world 
uh, and a debtor means all the rest of the world has to supply it with, uh, with credit, has to uh, give uh, its economic surpluses to the U.S. Treasury by holding their international bank reserves uh, in the form of uh, treasury bonds. That's how the basis of monetary uh, uh, central bank holdings in every country of the world. So uh, without conquering countries, without uh, conquering them militarily, uh, finance has become a new mode of warfare. And it's, it's an extractive word, uh, form of warfare. And it's specifically a finance capitalist form of warfare, not an industrial capitalist form of warfare. And I'm not even sure whether we should call it capitalism in the sense that you learn about capitalism from the 19th century, from Marx and from his contemporaries. It's something entirely different. It's a different dynamic, and it's much more akin to feudalism or to the ancient mode of production. So this has important consequences for uh, the new Cold War that's developing between China uh, and the United States. Uh, In order to achieve unilateral power to dictate the world's trade and investment and central bank rules, the United States has uh, sought to prevent any nation from organizing an alternative economic policy, any nation from being a rival or a competitor in agricultural uh, goods in food in technology uh, and this is what Samir Amen had uh, emphasized so strongly he said America wants to be the central planner and that requires that no other country has a voice in planning it, uh, that is uh, the United States built this into the system in 1944 uh, in 1945 in Bretton Woods uh, with the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund uh, essentially uh, giving the U.S. veto power. The U.S. insisted on in having veto power. It said, we're putting up the money, the creditor gets to rule, we get to uh, set the rules, and we uh, not only uh, do we insist in vetoing anything that the rest of the world does that does not serve American interests, but we're not going to join uh, any organization that uh, other countries can uh, set down the law or tell us what to do. The United States does not join the international court. Uh, it does, uh, it, uh, essentially, uh, imposes illegal laws, such as the laws that it's imposed against Huawei, against, uh, Iran, against Venezuela. It has become a lawless country, but it says we can be the lawless country because we are the law. And, uh, that has transformed, uh, international relations in an unforeseen way. Uh, it's not at all the same thing as the Thucydides trap. Uh, and I want to make it very clear. The Thucydides trap looked as if uh, it was uh, a word by uh, coined by neoliberals in the United States to say, well, we're all rivals, America, China, Europe. Uh, uh, we're jealous of anyone else becoming a rival. Well, That's not what Thucydides was talking about at all 2,500 years ago when he described the conflict between Athens and Sparta. It wasn't just a conflict within a given system. They weren't playing the same game. It was a conflict between different and opposing social systems. Athens was a democracy. 
Sparta was an oligarchy. Sparta, with its military force, was supporting oligarchies throughout all of Greece. Athens uh, was supporting democracies. Um, the, the fight that Thucydides described was a fight of social systems. And that's the same fight that there is today. America and China are not rivals to create who will run the, uh, the world in a thing, the way that it's being run today. Uh, the question is, to cr- how do we create a new kind of global economy? I think that's what Professor Wen is going to be speaking about later. Uh, essentially, China and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization nations are de-dollarizing. Uh, they're trying to avoid uh, uh, participation in the U.S. centrally planned economy. They're trying to create a different system from that of neoliberal finance capitalism. Now, what's so ironic in this is that China's policy is more closely related to what the United States was doing. It was called the American system in the mid-19th century. It was uh, the U.S. industrial takeoff was based on something that China has done uh, intuitively, following uh, just its own logic, uh, basic uh, industrial protective tariffs, uh, public subsidy of agriculture, public subsidy of education, public provision of infrastructure, and uh, providing these infrastructure services, education, transportation, uh, uh, technology at, to the economy at as low a price as possible so that you can make China into a low cost of production economy with a low cost of living. So the kind of uh, world and uh, you could say world system that China is trying to do is very similar to the world system of industrial capitalism. It's trying to lower uh, the cost of living lower the cost of doing business uh, by uh, uh, being a mixed public-private economy with a public sector providing as natural monopolies, land, housing, education, and basic services. Uh, and these policies, of course, were those that were developing into socialism uh, 100 years ago. So what China has done is picked up the basic aims of industrial capitalism itself that it was expected to promote, and indeed was promoting, before World War I. Well, that's what frightens the United States, because the United States wants to make other countries into financial dependencies. It wants China to be a market for its exports, but not a rival for its exporters. It wants uh, China to let American companies come in, buy out its uh, uh, factories and profits, uh, and... Uh, in, uh, capital, uh, and to make profits for American investors, uh, but not to pay China. America is, uh, supposed to do what Donald Trump said he was going to do as president. He's going to say, we're going to be the winners. Other countries are going to be losers. So that means that any agreement between China and the United States, uh, U.S. policy is China has to lose. And, uh, uh, China realizes that the only way that it can protect itself from this system, uh, along with withdrawing from the system, is to uh, may, uh, sponsor a more fair uh, form of globalism uh, with other countries, where other countries have mutual gain 
instead of uh, mutual exploitation. So the United States is driving for hegemony, and that includes injuring any potential rival, uh, whether they're a third world uh, food producer wanting to uh, undertake land reform to grow their own firm food, the United States will overthrow them and put in a client dictator. Uh, or whether uh, it's an uh, internet, uh, information technology in, innovator, and in which case America tries to fight. You see the American fighting with uh, Russia right now over who is going to provide Europe with gas. Uh, and the United States is pressuring uh, Germany and Europe not to buy Russian gas through Nord Stream 2, but to buy American liquefied natural, natural gas. You have America becoming a rival of any other country that's trying to, uh, to grow. And in that sense, the wild card in this globalization is uh, not uh, the Belt and Road Initiative that China is sponsoring, but it's ultimately at the very end of the Belt and Road Initiative. It's Europe. Is Europe going to do what it did after World War I and surrender to American rule as a debtor economy uh, drawing on Europe? Uh, or will Europe join with Eurasia and break away from the dollar sphere? Uh, an ancient uh, Chinese proverb uh, expressed the problem, a man who tries to take two roads at once will get a broken hip joint. Well, how, what is Europe going to do? It can't both remain in the American sphere and trade with uh, uh, Russia and China. Uh, and expand. Uh, and that brings in uh, the role of China uh, and Russia that has to be uh, part of the globalization. I think in the late 1970s, China uh, recognized that Soviet communism, that is Stalinist bureaucracy, was not a viable growth model. Uh, so what did the Chinese do? They, uh, you invited Milton Friedman and neoliberal free marketers in for advice. And your assumption was that, well, what's the alternative to Soviet communism? Uh, well, uh, they, uh, at least they had the idea of free markets, let a hundred flowers bloom, uh, black cat, white cat, as long as it catches mice. All of that opened up. Uh, the economy beyond uh, the kind of centrally planned economy. Uh, but the reality, of course, uh, is that Stalinism was not Marxism at all. There was another alternative for China uh, to develop uh, intellectually, and that alternative was Marxism. Marxism was not what China got from uh, Stalinist Russia. Marxism was not Soviet communism. Uh, and uh, that's why... Uh, China avoided inviting Marxists for advice because at that time most of the Marxists uh, uh, were uh, essentially uh, centrally planners. Uh, but the one thing that Marx did uh, analyze himself was not socialism. He didn't write much about socialism. He didn't write about uh, uh, communism, but Marx did write about capitalism. And I think that uh, the one thing that uh, when the Chinese students are trained in economics in America, they do not learn about is how does capitalism really work? It doesn't work the way the University of Chicago and Milton Friedman described. That's finance capitalism. Uh, there's not, very little to be gained in trying to uh, understand uh, finance capitalism because that's certainly not a growth model.
If the the one challenge that uh, China faces is how to prevent its industrial socialism uh, and uh, industrial capitalism from deteriorating into finance socialism or finance uh, capitalism, it it wants to prevent uh, it, it needs to prevent uh, the Chinese econ- economy from developing land rent from developing predatory finance, from develop, from siphoning off income to pay interest. China needs to avoid the financial dynamics that have been poisoning uh, uh, the United States and Europe and the Western economies and uh, destroying uh, industrial capitalism. Uh, so in order to do this, in order to go its own way, in order to avoid financialization, to avoid becoming a rentier economy, China needs to de-dollarize. Uh, and as uh, Professor Wen will be talking about, of course, regarding global war- warming, uh, it needs to uh, China needs to isolate uh, itself from uh, the whole uh, global warming technology that spreads from the West, because the largest industry in the West has been the privatized oil and gas. Uh, industry and uh, the oil and gas industry is essentially the lobbyist for global warming. American foreign policy for the last hundred years, just like British foreign policy, has been run by the oil sector. Uh, I learned this at Chase Manhattan Bank and working for the uh, oil uh, uh, industry 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Uh, and uh, the uh, globalization in a way that is sustainable uh, is an entirely different form of globalization than you'll be receiving from the United States. So uh, to sort of close up, uh, with, you know, what is it uh, that we need as an alternative theory to ground this new form of globalization? Well, it's that finance and housing, real estate and public utilities should be part of the public domain not privatized, Uh, privatization of rent-yielding resources, of uh, land rent, privatization of uh, credit and interest, privatization of monopoly rent is antithetical to industrial capitalism, and it's antithetical to socialism. Uh, China needs to prevent land speculation, uh, and you can do this by simply a land taxation. You tax uh, the land belongs to the state, but uh, now that it belongs to the state, you need uh, to levy a land tax on it to make sure that the state uh, not only owns the land, but receives all of the rental value of land and housing and good locations. Uh, Marx's volume two and three of Capital and his theories of surplus value describe uh, the uh, land rent uh, and uh, in great detail. Uh, and uh, essentially, uh, he explains how uh, value and price theory, as it developed uh, from the classical economists to himself, uh, rent is unearned income. No socialist economy should have unearned income, whether it's interest or whether it's absentee uh, rent owned by a landlord or whether it's uh, uh, private ownership of natural resources, uh, mineral rights, uh, or even uh, technology. So at the very outset of putting a more productive socialist economy and policy in place, uh, you need uh, to get rid, to write down 
the existing debt overhead. You need essentially the economy to work on as much of a debt-free basis as possible. Of course, it needs credit. But the idea is that the credit will not be a, a requirement to, uh, of a cost of living. Uh, you don't want labor and industry to have to go more and more into debt uh, to creditors of the financial sector, because if you do that, then the financial sector uh, that creates credit is going to be uh, the economic planner. And we've seen from the West that uh, the banks are not good economic planners. Their planning is extractive not productive. Uh, so uh, we, I'm going to try to summarize what I'm saying now. I agree with Samar Amin that a uh, sharp break from the U.S. dollar sphere is needed. Uh, my own emphasis is on debt uh, and on classical tax policy to prevent land rent and monopoly rent from creating a rentier class of absentee owners. Uh, and I emphasize uh, the need to cancel debts and uh, clear out the economy uh, to lower the cost of living. Uh, I think if you want, I've uh, written my book, Super Imperialism, as a, uh, to explain the repertory of all of the techniques and the tactics that the United States have used to prevent other countries from having a voice in world affairs, and I've written Killing the Host uh, to explain the dynamics of finance capitalism that uh, America is using as a kind of battering ram to break down other economies, to prevent them from growing, and to sort of empty them out and siphon off the wealth of uh, China, Europe, third world countries uh, into its own uh, financial sector. Uh, and I think the objective of globalization is to resist this dollarization, this financialization of the economy, and uh, uh, pick up where civilization in the West should have gone uh, when World War II began. To, uh, it should have evolved from industrial capitalism to socialism. You want to pick it up and avoid the long hundred years detour that the West has taken into finance capitalism. Professor Michael Hudson's new book, The Collapse of Antiquity, Greece and Roma Civilization's Oligarchic Turning Point is a seminal event in this year of living dangerously when, to paraphrase Gramsci, the old geopolitical and geoeconomic order is dying and the new one is being born at breakneck speed. Professor Hudson's main thesis is absolutely devastating. He sets out to prove that economic forward-slash-financial practices in ancient Greece and Rome the pillars of Western civilization set the stage for what is happening today right in front of our eyes, an empire reduced to a rentier economy, collapsing from within. And that brings us to the common denominator in every single Western financial system, it's all about debt, inevitably growing by compound interest. A there's the rub. Before Greece and Rome, we had nearly 3,000 years of civilizations across West Asia doing exactly the opposite. These kingdoms all knew about the importance of cancelling debts. Otherwise their subjects would fall into bondage, lose their land to a bunch of foreclosing creditors, and these would usually try to overthrow the ruling power. Aristotle succinctly framed it. Under democracy, 
creditors begin to make loans and the debtors can't pay and the creditors get more and more money, and they end up turning a democracy into an oligarchy, and then the oligarchy makes itself hereditary, and you have an aristocracy. Professor Hudson sharply explains what happens when creditors take over and reduce all the rest of the economy to bondage, it's what's called today austerity or debt deflation. China sells US debt, stockpiles gold amid the dollarization trend so what's happening in the banking crisis today is that debts grow faster than the economy can pay. And so when the interest rates finally began to be raised by the Federal Reserve, this caused a crisis for the banks. Professor Hudson also proposes an expanded formulation. The emergence of financial and land-holding oligarchies made debt peonage and bondage permanent, supported by a pro-creditor legal and social philosophy that distinguishes Western civilization from what went before. Today it would be called neoliberalism. Then he sets out to explain, in excruciating detail, how this state of affairs was solidified in antiquity in the course of over five centuries. One can hear the contemporary echoes of violent suppression of popular revolts and targeted assassination of leaders seeking to cancel debts and redistribute land to smallholders who have lost it to large landowners. The verdict is merciless, what impoverished the population of the Roman Empire bequeathed a creditor-based body of legal principles to the modern world. Predatory oligarchies and oriental despotism Professor Hudson develops a devastating critique of the social Darwinist philosophy of economic determinism, a self-congratulatory perspective has led to today's institutions of individualism and security of credit and property contracts, favoring creditor claims over debtors, and landlord rights over those of tenants being traced back to classical antiquity as positive evolutionary developments, moving civilization away from oriental despotism. All that is a myth. Reality was a completely different story, with Rome's extremely predatory oligarchies waging five centuries of war to deprive populations of liberty blocking popular opposition to harsh pro-creditor laws and the monopolization of the land into latifundia estates. So Rome in fact behaved very much like a failed state, with generals, governors, tax collectors, moneylenders and carpet beggars squeezing out silver and gold in the form of military loot, tribute and usury from Asia Minor, Greece and Egypt. And yet this Roman wasteland approach has been lavishly depicted in the modern West as bringing a French-style mission civilizatrice to the barbarians while carrying the proverbial white man's burden. Professor Hudson shows how Greek and Roman economies actually ended in austerity and collapsed after having privatized credit and land in the hands of rentier oligarchies. Does that ring a contemporary bell? Arguably the central nexus of his argument is here, Rome's law of contracts established the fundamental principle of Western legal philosophy giving creditor claims priority over the property of debtors euphemized today as security of property rights. Public expenditure on social welfare was minimized what today's political ideology calls leaving matters to the market. 
it was a market that kept citizens of Rome and its empire dependent for basic needs on wealthy patrons and moneylenders and for bread and circuses, on the public dole and on games paid for by political candidates, who often themselves borrowed from wealthy oligarchs to finance their campaigns. Any similarity with the current system led by the hegemon is not mere coincidence. Hudson, these pro-rentier ideas, policies and principles are those that today's westernized world is following. That is what makes Roman history so relevant to today's economies suffering similar economic and political strains. Professor Hudson reminds us that Rome's own historians Livy, Sallust, Appian, Plutarch, Dionysius of Halicarnassus, among others emphasized the subjugation of citizens to debt bondage. Even the Delphic Oracle in Greece, as well as poets and philosophers, warned against creditor greed. Socrates and the Stoics warned that wealth addiction and its money love was the major threat to social harmony and hence to society. And that brings us to how this criticism was completely expunged from Western historiography. Very few classicists, Hudson notes, follow Rome's own historians describing how these debt struggles and land grabs were mainly responsible for the Republic's decline and fall. Hudson also reminds us that the barbarians were always at the gate of the empire, Rome, in fact, was weakened from within, by century after century of oligarchic excess. So this is the lesson we should all draw from Greece and Rome, creditor oligarchies seek to monopolize income and land in predatory ways and bring prosperity and growth to a halt. Plutarch was already into it, the greed of creditors brings neither enjoyment nor profit to them, and ruins those whom they wrong. They do not till the fields which they take from their debtors, nor do they live in their houses after evicting them. Beware of Pleonexia it would be impossible to fully examine so many precious ideas as jade offerings constantly enriching the main narrative. Here are just a few nuggets, and there will be more, Professor Hudson told me, I'm working on the sequel now, picking up with the Crusades. Professor Hudson reminds us how money matters, debt and interest came to the Aegean and Mediterranean from West Asia by traders from Syria and the Levant, around 8th century BC. But with no tradition of debt cancellation and land redistribution to restrain personal wealth-seeking, Greek and Italian chieftains, warlords and what some classicists have called mafiosi, by the way, northern European scholars, not Italians, imposed absentee land ownership over dependent labor. This economic polarization kept constantly worsening. Solan did cancel debts in Athens in the late 6th century but there was no land redistribution. Athens' monetary reserves came mainly from silver mines which built the navy that defeated the Persians at Salamis. Pericles may have boosted democracy, but the eventful defeat facing Sparta in the Peloponnesian War. 431 to 404 BC, opened the gates to a heavy debt-addicted oligarchy.
All of us who studied Plato and Aristotle in college may remember how they framed the whole problem in the context of pleonexia, wealth addiction, which inevitably leads to predatory and socially injurious practices. In Plato's Republic, Socrates proposes that only non-wealthy managers should be appointed to govern society so they would not be hostages of hubris and greed. The problem with Rome is that no written narratives survived. The standard stories were written only after the Republic had collapsed. The Second Punic War against Carthage, 218-201 BC, is particularly intriguing, considering its contemporary Pentagon overtones. Professor Hudson reminds us how military contractors engaged in large-scale fraud and fiercely blocked the Senate from prosecuting them. Professor Hudson shows how that also became an occasion for endowing the wealthiest families with public land when the Roman state treated their ostensibly patriotic donations of jewelry and money to aid the war effort as retroactive public debts subject to repayment. After Rome defeated Carthage, the Glipsy set wanted their money back. But the only asset left to the state was land in Campania, south of Rome. The wealthy families lobbied the Senate and gobbled up the whole lot. With Caesar, that was the last chance for the working classes to get a fair deal. In the first half of the first century BC he did sponsor a bankruptcy law writing down debts. But there was no widespread debt cancellation. Caesar being so moderate did not prevent the Senate oligarchs from whacking him, fearing that he might use his popularity to seek kingship and go for way more popular reforms. After Octavian's triumph and his designation by the Senate as Princeps and Augustus in 27 BC, the Senate became just a ceremonial elite. Professor Hudson summarizes it in one sentence, the Western Empire fell apart when there was no more land for the taking and no more monetary bullion to loot. Once again, one should feel free to draw parallels with the current plight of the hegemon. Time to uplift all labor in one of our immensely engaging email exchanges. Professor Hudson remarked how he immediately had a thought on a parallel to 1848. I wrote in the Russian business paper Vedomosti, after all, that turned out to be a limited bourgeois revolution. It was against the rentier landlord class and bankers but was as yet a far cry from being pro-labor. The great revolutionary act of industrial capitalism was indeed to free economies from the feudal legacy of absentee landlordship and predatory banking, but it too fell back as the rentier classes made a comeback under finance capitalism. And that brings us to what he considers the great test for today's split, whether it is merely for countries to free themselves from U.S. forward-slash-NATO control of their natural resources and infrastructure, which can be done by taxing natural resource rent, thereby taxing away the capital flight by foreign investors who have privatized their natural resources. The great test will be whether countries in the new global majority will seek to uplift all labor, as China's socialism is aiming to do.
it's no wonder socialism with Chinese characteristics spooks the hegemon creditor oligarchy to the point they are even risking a hot war. What's certain is that the road to sovereignty, across the global south, will have to be revolutionary. Independence from U.S. control is the Westphalian reforms of 1648, the doctrine of non-interference in the affairs of other states. A rent tax is a key element of independence, the 1848 tax reforms. How soon will the modern 1917 take place? Let Plato and Aristotle weigh in, as soon as humanly possible.